Sea Ridge. You know, there was an HOA, I mean, the Homeowners Association, who had brought in a tree trimming service to trim all the trees in the neighborhood. And uh, as the tree trimming was going down, there was one tree on this old boy's lot that hadn't been touched. So he goes up to the arborist and says, hey, man, what's the deal? He said, well, I gave a quote to the uh, HOA. I didn't give, uh, I said I didn't do fruit trees. And uh, it was a Bradford pear. And he said, dude, this thing's not made fruit in seven years. What are you talking about? He said, well, it's still a pear tree. It's still a fruit tree. It's a domesticated fruit tree, uh, but it's still a fruit tree. And I'm going to have to have more money to do that. Uh, The arborist said that there are some fruit trees like that one that are beautiful to look at. And they're easy to maintain. And they're ideal decorative species uh, because a real fruit tree makes, makes fruit and makes a mess of your lawn. You can slip on it, brings in bugs and ants and all kinds of things like that. Uh, so what the arborist is saying, what a domesticated fruit tree is, is that the fruit-bearing gene has been bred out of the DNA, and that, that tree can no longer produce. It's pretty to look at. It's easy to maintain without all the mess. I got a feeling that lots of us kind of approach our, our walk with Christ that way. We want the beauty of it. We want to... Uh, show it off. We want people to say, hey, man, look at that. But we don't want the messy side of discipleship. We don't want the messy side of following Jesus. We don't want the, the arduous situation of having to grow in our faith. So we kind of take that approach uh, with it. Uh, on this, I didn't mention this last night, but, but church, if a fruit tree doesn't present or produce fruit, what good is the fruit tree? And I'm not going to ask you to answer that loud, but I want you to wrestle that in your mind. Um, we want all the blessings of the kingdom. We want our healing. We want our joy. We want our peace. Uh, we want to feel like we're a part of a community, of a church. We want to go to small groups. We want to sing those songs that give you the feels. And, and we want to involve with the community of faith. Uh, but we don't want to pay the cost of discipleship. We don't want to pay the cost of following after Jesus. And that's where it does get messy. Uh, and that's what it looks like when you've embraced the kingdom without embracing the king. We may look really, really pretty, but we don't have what Jesus himself can bring to the table. Now, following King Jesus, Jesus Messiah, it can get uncomfortable. It can get messy. Uh, It can get uneasy. It can get painful. It can get costly. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose some things if we want to deal with the messy side of discipleship. And I don't think we have an option. In Mark chapter 8, there are at least five different uh, examples of people seeing Jesus a little differently in the very first part of of Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bible, we're going to be there in a second. So if you have your Bible, turn there. Or if you're you're on your phone, turn your Bible on. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. The very first thing in Mark chapter 8, and the only reason I'm giving you this is because I want you to see the background of where we're going to be. We're going to be the very end of this chapter. Uh, Jesus performs Messiah-level miracle. There's 4,000 people there, and he feeds them. them He feeds everybody there with just a couple of bread. Uh, a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. This is a different story than the feeding of the 5,000. I didn't say it wrong. You can go back and look at the text. Um, so these people were there not to see Jesus Messiah, but to see Jesus the miracle caterer. Uh, they were there for the meal. Uh, you go down just in the very next breath. Uh, the Pharisees came to him and said, Dude, we, we want you, you, we want you to do a Messiah level uh, uh, a Messiah-level miracle. They weren't looking for him to heal somebody with a headache or somebody with a backache or, or somebody who was sick. When the Pharisees went to Jesus, they were looking for Messiah-level, next-level type of stuff. They weren't looking for these little things over here. They were saying, dude, bring fire down from heaven. You want to impress us? Let's see who you are. Bring bread down from heaven like you did in the Exodus. They, they, they wanted something powerful and extreme. 
And Jesus, you know, he's not, you know, he's not a monkey. He's not going to perform like that. So these guys walked away. Now, they had a, the Pharisees were, they had a, a fatalistic view with, with uh, religion. Uh, they, 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 they did everything. They were so, uh, they were so OCD with, with these things. They wouldn't walk but a certain number of steps on the Sabbath because they were so religious. In fact, if you go to Israel today, come nightfall on Friday, God help you if you're on the, 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 the top floor and you want to get to the bottom because, Ms. Schaefer, they, they won't let the Orthodox Jews even push the button on the elevator because that's work. So it, you've got to wait for every floor. You've got to stay at every floor. That was just, that's who they are. Uh, they, they take the religious part very, very seriously. Now, what I see in these guys, these are people who embrace the kingdom, but they didn't embrace the king. Next spot down. Jesus and his disciples are on board. They're, on a, they're, on, they're going across the lake on a boat. They get in there, and they, they start complaining because they don't have any food. Remember what Jesus just did? He fed 4,000 people with a, ham, with a sandwich. I almost said ham sandwich. That wouldn't have worked. Uh, sounds good, but it wouldn't have worked. Uh, filet of fish. He fed 4,000 people with a filet of fish. And the guys are on the boat, and they're worried about. You want to know what they're worried about? Who are we going to get some food? How crazy are these guys? Didn't you just see what Jesus did? We look at those guys and, man, where's your faith, man? Why don't you understand what Jesus did? And then I thought, when I was writing that down, I thought, I do the same thing. Jesus has brought me through so much. And I wonder if he'll bring me through the next thing. So I don't have any stones to throw at those boys. Get down to the very next verse. Jesus is with his disciples in the crowd. And he begins to say, who do they say I am? Who do they say? Now, the disciples, I think they had an understanding of who the king was, but they didn't have an understanding of the kingdom. And that's where I talked about with Jesus Messiah. Some of them said, dude, some of them say you're John the Baptist. Some of them say that you're Elijah. Some of them say that you're other prophet. And then Peter replied, because Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Jesus said, well, uh, Peter said, well, you're the Messiah. You're the, you're, you're the guy. He got it. He understood the concept. He understood who Jesus was. And uh, what he does there in Mark 8.31 is he begins to, to, relieve, to reveal the content of the way redemption is going to go. He says the Son of Man many things. And he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the whole process of redemption. He's talking about what he must suffer and things like that. And then Peter comes to the side of him and says, dude, you've got to stop that. And that's when Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, I don't think... Peter was Satan, but this is what had happened. Peter began to argue with the word of God. Jesus was saying, this is what's going to go down. And Peter said, I don't want that to go down. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Church, anytime we argue with the word of God, we leave the door open for Satan to speak lies into our mind. And when Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, brother, sister, that's what's going to happen. And when we go to argue with him, that's when we open the crack of the door to let the enemy come in. The, the content creators always ask us to do this on Facebook or whatever, we, on YouTube or whatever. If you like this video, make sure to, to, to like, subscribe, and follow. The disciples liked Jesus. In fact, man, they loved him. They left everything they had, but they didn't understand the full context of what the kingdom meant in their life. The Pharisees, I think they knew a whole lot about the kingdom, but they didn't know a whole lot about the king. The crowd, the Pharisees, the disciples all had an idea of who Jesus was. But in verse 31, Jesus clears up all confusion of who he was. Jesus doesn't call us to simply like him or to subscribe to his words. This is what the Bible says. Then Jesus called the crowd 
And along with the crowd were the followers, the disciples. He said, y'all, if you want to, follow me. You're going to have to give up some things you want. They must be willing even to give up their lives to follow me. Those who want to save their lives will give up true life, but those who give up their lives for me for the good news will have true life. By the way, church, I'm just going to preach through 34 today. I was originally going to preach this as a whole sermon, then it got too big, and I just thought, well, hopefully you'll come back next week. Uh, those who want to save their lives will give up true life, but those who give up their lives for me and for the good news will have true life. It's worth noting. It's worth nothing for them to have the whole world if they lose their souls. They can never pay enough to buy back their souls. You couldn't pay enough to, to, to have a second time of trying to please God with the life. They can never pay that back. Verse 38, the people who live now are living in a sinful and evil time. If people are ashamed of me and my teaching, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes with his Father's glory and with all the angels. Church, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the disciples. Now, there's a crowd of people, and not everybody in the crowd was a disciple, but the disciples were in the crowd. And what Jesus was saying, if you want me, if you want to follow me, if you want to, to pursue me, uh, then this is what you have to do. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He's not talking to lost people. He's not talking about people who aren't saved. He's not talking to people who have not made a confession of faith. He's not talking to people who have not acknowledged him as Messiah. He's talking to his disciples. People like you and me. People who have placed our faith in him. People who have, who have fallen in love with him. And Jesus wasn't explaining how to be forgiven. He wasn't explaining how to be saved. He wasn't explaining how to go to heaven. What he was explaining was how to live their lives for him. Kind of the question that I come to right there is, how do I make the most out of the one life I've been given for God? How do I make the most out of that one life that I can't buy another one of? I can't return this one and exchange it for another one. Right now, how do I make the most out of this one life God has given me to live? In Mark 8, Jesus described what a follower's life looks like when they're following after him. And church, what I think the sermon was going to say to us today is this. Followers of Jesus live lives of growing devotion to him and to his kingdom. We have a growing devotion to him and to his kingdom. What I hope will happen today is that you'll consider what you need to change. What you need to do differently in order to be that disciple that follows. Let's look at what Jesus is looking for in, in the folks who follow him. Number one, these aren't, there's, there's two points to this sermon, Jema. The first one is long. The second one is a doinker. It's small, okay? Uh, this is a seven-page sermon, and I'm already on page four. The first thing Jesus looks for in his followers is followers who will say, Jesus, take the wheel. Yep, blatantly stole that from Carrie Underwood. He's looking for, for men and women who will, who will just let him take control. People who will let him take the wheel. Then he called the crowd, this is Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up that cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me. Jesus knew not everyone who was there was going to come after him. He knew that not everybody there was going to go through the messiness of discipleship. They were there for the miracles. They were there for the supernatural manifestations. They were there for the cool stuff. Not everybody was there because he's the Messiah. Not everybody was there because he's the Redeemer. Now church, each of us have to decide whether we're going to be just a part of the crowd or we're going to be one of the followers. 
We have to decide which one that we're going to be. Now, if anyone chooses or decides to follow Jesus, there is a price to be paid. There are sacrifices that must be made, suffering that will be endured. It's not a walk in the park. Satan offers us glory right now without suffering, and Jesus promises us suffering right now, but he says later it will be transformed into glory. That's what the devil says. That's what Jesus says. Jesus, Jesus says, suffer now, glory later. The devil says, glory now and glory later. But that dude lies. Suffering is what comes with the enemy. The enemy would never have us deny ourselves. Where Jesus said, deny yourself. The devil never wants us to deny ourselves of anything. But Jesus has called us to denying self. But church, denying self is not self-denial. There's a difference. Self-denial is when we give up things or we give up uh, activities occasionally. No shave October. That would be an example of that, okay? Uh, maybe you're on a diet. You know, you're, 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 denying, you're, you're, you're denying yourself, I don't know, whatever people deny themselves on a diet. Uh, but but we, we deny ourselves for a moment. That's self-denial. Well, what's denying self look like? Denying self means that we surrender ourselves completely to Christ in obedience to Him. We deny our smarts. We deny our abilities. We deny our talents, our, our power. We forget ourselves. We lose sight of ourselves. We lose sight of our interests. And we turn away from the idol of self-centeredness. And we lose ourselves in Him. We abandon our self-confidence. We abandon our self-reliance. We abandon our self-righteousness and we depend totally upon Jesus, His power, and His mercy alone for salvation. Church, listen to me on this. Let me give you just a little bit more information on this. Denying ourselves starts when we're admitting that we're not the source, we're not the cause of anything good in our life. Well, preacher, I... I went to graduate school. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a learned doctor. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I've made my career at, at, uh, at Menard or, or uh, CMHC. I've worked hard. I did all my training and things like that. How can you say that, that I didn't do this? That's, self -den uh, that's denying yourself. Because, you see, when we deny ourselves, we realize that nothing in our life could have happened if it wouldn't have been without Jesus. We wouldn't have even been born without Him. And so it starts there with square one where it says, nothing good in my life is because of me, is because of my strength and my talent. I am totally relied. I am totally blessed. I am living on child support from God. That's what denying ourselves looks like. That He is the source of every good thing of our life and He is more important than everything else, including ourselves. He's more important than our views. He's more important than our opinions. He's more important than our identity. He's more important than being red or blue. He's more important than where you stand on an issue. He is the Messiah and when we deny ourselves, we are saying, Jesus... You are the most important thing. Now, why does the concept of, of denying everything about us to, to put Jesus up on the pedestal, the highest pedestal in our life, why does that rattle us? I'm going to tell you why it rattles, I think, me. Ever since I was born, I was told, oh, you're special, you're unique, here's a trophy. You're so good, there's nobody like you. That's bull. I'm not special. I'm not unique. None of us. Because you see, without Jesus, all of us die and we bust hell wide open. 
There's nothing good in me. And so we get to the point where we realize, I, I have nothing, anything good in me is just filthy rags. The only good in me is because of Jesus. That's denying ourselves. And we put Him first and foremost, and we put Him as the King of our life, and we live a life that reeks of His peacemaking and grace and His gentleness and things like that. We're taught from birth that we're special. But church, we wouldn't have even have been born if it wasn't for Jesus. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. So if we're denying ourselves, then what do we embrace? If we're saying no to this, then what are we saying yes to? Jesus gathered his followers and the disciples, the crowd and the followers. He says, whoever wants to come after me, he must deny himself and then he must do what? The negative of the picture, the negative image would be to deny yourself. The positive of what we do is we pick up a cross. That's the other side of that picture. If anyone wants to follow me, then take up his cross. Now, we, we know that that's a metaphor and that's something that's in our, uh, that's something that's in our language. Uh, everybody has a cross to bear. And that's true. You know, we all have problems. We all have burdens. We all have things in our life. And, and it is true. We can carry our burdens to Jesus. But that's really not what this verse is saying. I want you to understand something. Um, Metaphors are something that are found in, in every language. But when Jesus said, pick up your own cross, that wasn't a metaphor that was familiar with Jewish people. In fact, they shun the cross. In fact, the Bible says whoever is hung on the cross is cursed. So when Jesus says, pick up your cross, we know what that means. But when he said that to his original audience, this is what they heard. This is what Jesus heard. Huh? Because to them, when Jesus said, pick up your cross, they didn't know about Calvary. They didn't know about Golgotha. They didn't know about the Via Dolorosa. They didn't know about the passion of the Christ. When they heard the cross mentioned, when Jesus said, pick up your cross, what they thought of was the three or 400 people that were literally hanging on crosses on the way into the city. Rebels who had rebelled against in the first century against the Roman government who were occupying Israel. And what would happen was, Condemned as a rebel, the, the Roman magistrate would convict you, condemn you. You would carry a Roman cross on your shoulders. Remember Jesus? Carrying the Roman so, uh, cross down the Via del Reyes, the main street of town. And what that was saying is that it was demonstrating submission to the Roman government. There's a whole other sermon here. If Jesus couldn't carry his cross alone, what makes you think you can carry your cross alone? It's another sermon. That's all I got. So when these people heard Jesus say, take up your cross, they weren't thinking of those beautiful pictures of, of Calvary. They were thinking about those grotesque dudes when they came into town. And so when Jesus was saying, take up your cross, that's what they knew. Take up your cross wasn't a Jewish metaphor. Here's some Jewish slang and metaphor. We've heard of Ove, right? Ove. We've heard of this thing went kaputz. We've heard we've been called schmuck. We've, we've heard people spill. We've heard people stick. Those would have been... That's Yiddish, by the way. That's the best I can do. I'm sorry. Uh, 
But everyone would have known what those things were. We know what those things were. When Jesus said, take up the cross, people looked at him like a calf looking at a new gate. They had no idea what Jesus meant because the only thing they knew about a cross was execution. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, what he was saying is, submit to me. Surrender to me. Be under my dominion. Be under my authority. Live a life that reeks of my peace, that reeks of my love, that reeks of my grace and, and gentleness, that reeks, of, uh, that reeks of me. Do it in your relationships. Do it at work. Do it at school. Do it in the bedroom. Do it in the boardroom. Do it at your, at your, at your sitting room. Do it, do it wherever you're at. But Jesus is saying, wherever you're at, let me be the authority over you. And Jesus is saying, get ready, because if you're serious about denying yourself, Get ready for a tough time because it's not easy. In fact, it looks like a cross. Okay. Jesus says, I'm looking for followers who will take the wheel. So far, that looks like denying ourselves and it looks like picking up a cross. Y'all ready to give Jesus the wheel? Because what I'm about to tell you is weird. Because after we give him the real wheel, Jesus looks for his followers to go on a road trip. He said, it's not just for enough for me to have the wheel. Let's go. This is what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then let's hit the road. Let's go on a road trip, you and me. If you follow Jesus, what, and this is what you can expect. If you follow Jesus, then, then you can expect whatever happened to him will happen to you. If you're on the same road he traveled, whatever happened to him will happen to you. Rejection. You will be despised. You will be put down. You will be crucified maybe publicly or online for the stances you take. You may be called old-fashioned. You may be called whatever. But when you decide to pick up the, uh, when you decide to deny yourself and pick up the cross, Jesus is saying, you're following me, you might as well expect people to hate you. You see, not just walking like Jesus did, but literally walking with Him every moment of your life. You're walking with Him in your day to day. You're walking with Him through your life. You and Him down every road in your life, every storm, every disappointment, every loss, every embarrassment, every crisis, every failure. Church, Jesus is with you, but can I tell you what? He's also with you on the best days. He's also with you when you got good news from the doctor. He's also with you when things are going well. You see, he's, all, he's God, not just over the mess, but He's also God over the victory. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Jesus wants us to walk the way He did, not in an Aerosmith way. But when He says, walk and follow me, this is a cool thought. Please get this. And by the way, I'm almost done. Whatever road Jesus took, he was always following God's will. There was never a point when Jesus didn't walk in the will of God. Even to Calvary. So church, when we get serious about our discipleship and we understand what Jesus is saying when he says, follow me, what Jesus is calling us to do is to deny ourselves, tape up a cross, and then follow the will of God. All the time, every day, in every way, with what we do and with what we say, Jesus always follow the will of the Father. Church, if you're following Jesus, you're going to follow the will of God. What else could you do? 
And we're not ever traveling the road, the, the road alone anymore. We're on the road with Jesus. We'll, even when we get lost, Jesus is with us. Even when we make wrong turns, Jesus is with us. Even when the engine blows up after we ignored the flashing sign for six months. Jesus is with us. No matter what road we're in or situation, even when we drop the ball, Jesus is with us and He says, hey, come on, we need to keep going because son, daughter, you're not home yet. So He says, follow me. I know where I'm going. I know the way. And I think when that happens, St. Paul's testimony becomes ours in Galatians 2, 20. Now with what we read, I want you to examine this through that filter of Mark 8. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live because I've denied myself. But it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the Messiah, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Church, it wasn't just Paul Jesus died for, it was us too. So we could be disciples, so we could be followers. Uh, the essence of what I saw in the text was in Mark 8, Jesus described what a follower's life looked like when they lived for Jesus. And I think what the message tells us is this. Followers of Jesus live life with a growing devotion to Him and to His kingdom. What I hope happens today is you'll decide what do you need to change or give up? What do you need to do in order to be a better follower of Jesus? Not a better like or subscribe person, but somebody who will literally follow Him. Jesus is looking for his followers who are willing to let him have the wheel. To deny ourselves, to deny all the things in us, our abilities, our strength, and say, you know what, God, I'm nothing without you. I can't even believe on my own. I need you for my faith. He's looking for true disciples who will give him the wheel, who will, who will acknowledge that he's the most important thing, and he's the only way we're going to heaven. Surrender our lives to him, every part of our lives, every day. That's what giving Jesus the wheel looks like. But he's also looking for us to go on a road trip. Walk with him every day. And what he did every day is he walked in the will of God. That's what he's calling us to do. Y'all, from a human standpoint, this is tough. Because we've always been told what we think matters. and Our opinion counts. And our views are important. But you know, when we become a Christian, God's views become our views. God's word becomes our roadmap. God will becomes, God's will becomes the tempo of our life. You see, the world may say that you're losing yourself and you're losing your rights. You're losing your autonomy. You're losing your individuality if you deny yourself and take up the cross and follow Jesus. And what heaven is saying from us, what God's point of view is, is this. When we totally surrender our life, now we get to be what God has always made us to be. Now we really get to be who God made us. The other is the lie. Jesus is telling us the truth. Church. Being a Republican doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Democrat doesn't make you a Christian. Doesn't matter whether you live in a red state or a blue state. Doesn't matter. Doesn't make you a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm pro-life. That's not what makes you a Christian. By the way, I'm not getting on you. I'm pro-life myself. Oh, I give to the less fortunate. I'm a Christian. That's not what makes you a Christian. I've got a fish bumper stick. I've got a fish bumper sticker on my car, preach. Or I wear a Christian t-shirt to school. That what makes you a Christian. Mike, I'm Catholic or Baptist or Lutheran or Mormon or whatever. Assembly of God. 
don't make you a Christian. Well, I've been baptized, preach. Or I belong to this church, or I attend another church. People say, well, I pray, or I read the Bible, I'm a Christian. Here's another one. Well, I'm a Christian because my whole family's went to church for years. That's not it. Well, I'm a good person. I'm as good as my neighbor and she's a deacon. Or I was baptized as an infant. Or I was confirmed. Or, or I belong to this church or that church. That is not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that He is Jesus Messiah. He came to die on a cross to remove your sin, die in your place. Church, you're a Christian because of Jesus, not because of how you vote or where you go to church or how you were baptized. It's Jesus. And He's asking us, calling us, looking for these things in us to deny ourselves to take up the cross and then follow him in fact I can make an argument that we can't follow him until we've done the first two things because the only way you follow oh God the only way you follow Jesus is through the cross you don't meet him until you go to the cross I can have every head bowed every eye closed Y'all, this morning I ask you the question, what do you need to change in order to be a, a follower of Jesus? To be a better follower of Jesus? For some of you, man, you need to start just by denying yourself. And then for some of you, it means that you and your wife are in love with the same man. You. Men, for some of you, it means you're going to have to say, you know what? I'm human. I make mistakes. Blow with my kids, blow with my wife. And the reason why is because I know I'm not doing it like Jesus wants me to. Men, some of you need today to come in brokenness and say, God, I'm sorry. I've been I've not been denying myself, but I'm denying myself starting right now. Now, ladies, I've got a better understanding on what the men, what it means for the men, but but I but I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit. God's gonna reveal to, to the ladies in the room today exactly what that means for you to change. It might look what you see. It might look like your browser history. It might look like what you do in texting. It might look, uh, it, it, I don't know. But man, what do you need to do? Miss, what do you need to do? If I could ask you to stand to your feet with every head bowed, every eye closed. In a moment, I'm going to open up the invitation and the altar is open. Maybe today you need to come up and settle some things with God and just simply say, God, I'm sorry. I, I didn't I didn't do this thing right. I'm not denying myself. I'm not taking maybe the only time God, maybe the only time I'm taking up my cross is Sunday from ten thirty to eleven thirty. The rest of the time I look just like uh, anybody else. Y'all in a moment, if you like to just come up to a, to the front of the church and there's this is what we call the altar. And the reason we call it an altar is because the altar in the Bible is where people would come to sacrifice things and leave things to God what I'm asking you to leave before God today is your past, your failure, your, uh, your lack of knowledge. You know, people die because of lack of vision and lack of knowledge. Today, you've been given that knowledge. You've been given that vision. Maybe you need to confess of what it's been in the past and say, Lord, I'm embracing you and I'm going forward with you. 
And church, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then I'm going to open up the invitation for you. And this is just a time between you and God. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that these folks would seek you while you can be found. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this room there would be folks who are transferred from the crowd into the follower column. And Lord, today your Holy Spirit would convict us of how to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen. The invitation is open. Would you come? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed just as a way of surrender would you sing that again with me but this time with your hands up i want the enemy to know whose side we're on and i want us to publicly confess that we're following jesus i have decided to follow jesus i 
Church, thank you so much for being here. We do love you. Miss Pam and I, we welcome you and we're glad that you're here. Uh, and we pray that you come back next week. Uh, Ridge gave us all the announcements. We have two weeks off on Wednesday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the second part of this message next week. And between you and me, I think the second part is probably just a little, little bit more special than part one. Uh, at least it was for me in my season. Uh, so I, I encourage you to come. Y'all, God bless you. Love you. Let's go to the Father in a word of prayer. And have a great, great, great week. Almighty God, we love you. Above, above all things, Lord, we want to deny ourselves. And we want to proclaim you. You are the king. You are the alpha and the omega, the bright morning star. You are the creator of all things, the king of the universe, but you're also our friend that sticks closer than a brother. You are also our redeemer. You are also the one who never leaves us or abandons us or forsakens us. The creator of the universe is our best friend, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for never leaving us alongside the road by ourselves. Thank you for never uh, leaving us when the going gets tough. Thank you for being with us, Father, through the good and the bad. Though you may slay us, yet we will bless your name. Father, I pray that you would fill us up today, this week, with all that you are and all that you have for us. Father, I pray this week that people would see you in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Hope to see you back next week.